I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here, but much more importantly, the author of 16 books. Florence Byham Weinberg is here, and Dr. Weinberg has, uh, is the subject of a documentary, a subject of an extended radio series, and now, of course, the host of her own show and constantly writing. Her memoir is in, in progress and uh, always get an interesting view of the world and world events and, and the underlying factors that, uh, that shape those events from Dr. Weinberg. Dr. Weinberg, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you. After, after being sort of under the weather for a while, I'm feeling good. Thank you. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, we were talking a little bit off mic about, uh, about unions and uh, and you know how they uh, affect the political process and and you have a personal experience or at least your father had a personal experience and and if it affects a parent and guess what it affects it affects the the, the children and the whole family. Right. Yes, uh, my story this time is uh, really about my father and the working conditions uh, he he encountered during the Great Depression, which actually began in 1939 with a crash, a stock market crash, and continued until World uh, War II. So it began to uh, to diminish when the United States began producing massive amounts of uh, ammunition for World War II, ammunition and artillery and all, all that. Uh, and before that, during the Great Depression, it was a time before unions. Uh, the union movement had had begun uh, in back in the back east mainly, and in the uh, south and southwest, it was hardly known at all. And uh, although FDR had been president since uh, 1932, the labor movement. Uh, was still, as I say, in its infancy and just beginning, spreading slowly from the east toward the west. And so I'm going to try to illustrate from my eyewitness testimony, because I was there, and I remember a lot of uh, what happened to my father. Uh, so I will illustrate what happens when there aren't any labor unions. And of course, Unions can cause a lot of inconvenience to the people they're supposed to be serving. Uh, and I'm going to give you an example. It's not an example from this country, but I was in France at the time. It was a year after my husband had died, and I was in France um, completing a book that I was writing in French, and it's one of the four uh, scholarly books that I have to my credit. So it was in 1997. My husband died the year before that. And uh, I was in Paris from May until November of that year. And at the end of my stay, so it was actually no, uh, not November yet, it was still October, I decided I was going to drive over to Constance, Germany, on Lake Constance and right to Switzerland um, uh, to visit uh, to visit friends that my husband and I had made some years earlier, and we had kept up with them by correspondence, and I wanted to see them and renew that friendship. 
So just as I started out, a, trucker's, a truck driver's strike was called just then. And the means they chose to make their uh, case obvious, their cause obvious to everybody, was to park their 18-wheelers across the major French expressways at strategic locations throughout the country. And this would be like uh, a trucker's strike uh, in the United States, where uh, just outside of New York City, uh, they would be parking 18-wheelers across the New York Thruway. Just imagine what a havoc that would cause. And so they brought the he- all the heavy traffic and the deliveries of goods, you, you name it, and of course uh, ordinary travel, to a halt. And people had to use the little uh, secondary roads. Those were left open so that medical uh, emergencies and such could be taken care of in a slower and cumbersome fashion, of course. So I then, I got out a map, and I mapped out a, a route uh, by secondary road from Paris to Strasbourg, and Strasbourg is right on the Rhine and therefore right on the border with Germany. And so I drove on these little winding roads through farmlands and and uh, over in hills and <laughs> through woods. And as a result, it took me twice as long to get to the border. And I had to stay in a hotel also. Uh, yet normally, you would get to the border the, on A3 or whatever it is, whatever the, the throughway is uh, numbered, uh, in a few hours, maybe five hours at the most. And it took me two days. But I saw much more of the beautiful French landscape that way. That was an advantage. However, the inconvenience for everybody won the battle for the unions, uh, and their demands were met right away. But that that kind of drastic uh, tactic really um, uh, could be deadly t- t- tactic. People could die because of that blockage. But anyway, uh, it certainly worked. But it gives the unions a bad name. And uh, as you probably remember, it was President Ronald Reagan uh, who called the bluff of the air traffic controllers when they went on strike illegally, by the way, and uh, he just fired them all and replaced them with green rookies who managed well enough so there were no major uh, crashes. <clears throat> and if there had been, of course, he uh, Reagan would have a black name, but as it is, he is a hero because he defeated the unions, and the heyday of the unions in this country began to fade. And uh, there have been some bitter consequences to that, such as the meatpacking plants when COVID got started and were ordered by the, our then-President Trump to continue working, regardless of the fact that people were falling dead <laughs> since the workers had to, had to work elbow to elbow and were catching COVID like like wildfire. Anyway, let's get back to the real story, which is my father's story. Uh, it was early 1937. I was born in 1933, and I was three years old going on four. My father had been running a ranch 
uh, and selling dairy products. And the dairy products, had the, the value of dairy products had dropped through the floor. So he was unable to make a living that way. And so he was looking for a job that would correspond to his profession, which was civil engineering. He had a degree in civil engineering. And he needed to be able to support his wife and child, namely me. And I actually was conscious enough to remember a, a good deal because it was pretty. It was a pretty traumatic time we had. Yeah. When we uh, when we got to Miami, Arizona, <laughs> uh, my uh, my aunt Lucille was was living there already, and she of course gave us uh, shelter for the night and told us how to get to the mine. And when we got out to the mine, they were not taking applications yet, um, and there were at least 12 applicants uh, in line for it. And uh, so all these applicants with their families, so these men, uh, some of whom had more than one child, um, were uh, decided to camp out on a hill nearby. And uh, during that time, there was a hailstorm, which I remember very well because my parents were trying, they were in the tent. I was in the tent with them, of course, and they were trying to hold the the uh, t- tent flap closed, getting their arms bruised by hailstones, and uh, enough of the hail was getting in, it was bouncing up and hitting me. I was standing behind them, and so I was stamping my feet and screaming, and so my poor father had to turn loose of the tent flap and pick me up and put me on the stacked boxes of goods that we of our furniture and so on uh, that we had in the tent. <laughs> All of that I remember as if it were yesterday. But anyway, once the storm was over and they opened the um, the application window for people to uh, to actually sign up, my father uh, gave it a try. One out of twelve. And since he did have a degree, and since he clearly, when they took him around, they took everybody, each each applicant took them around, showed them the machinery, the machinery that was above ground. And he, uh, although he had never seen those machines in his life, uh, he could see what they, uh, how they ran, because he he was a well-trained civil engineer, and so he said, oh, "Of course, I I know these machines. I can uh, I can fix these machines if there's anything wrong." And so ultimately, he was the one chosen. Okay, so the mine at that point, the mine still exists, Miami. Uh, Miami Mine, it's simply called that, it, it, not Miami Copper Mine, as it was at the time. And it's now uh, one of the uh, surface, uh, ripping out the uh, the surface of the earth to get to the ore. In those days, it had one shaft a 1,000 feet deep. And at the bottom of that shaft was the crusher machine. Now, my dad quickly had all the machine machinery uh, for the elevator and for crushing and all the other operations at that mine. He had them all up and running and doing very well, and he had some spare time. So they put him to work at manual labor. And his job was to shovel 
the raw ore that the miners dragged to the crusher um, in their trolleys to shovel it into the crushing machine. And the crushing machine was about 12 feet by 12 feet, and it had a hammer that was also 12 feet by 12 feet. And it had a door. It was a barred door that slammed shut when the hammer raised uh, was raised to a height of 20 feet, and then it was simply dropped, and it came hurtling down and crashed it, uh, on top of the raw ore and uh, and uh, reduced it to pebbles. And then the the, uh, the miners would rake all of that out quickly, and uh, and sort out the uh, the copper uh, from from the uh, the rest of the debris and discard, of course, uh, the the rocks. And my dad then was standing there at the at the door as it opened, and he had uh, trolleys to unload, which he did, and then the hammer went up and came down, and as the hammer uh, went up, the doors closed. Uh, so there was an interval when it was going up, and then they crash, then the, the doors opened a little bit, and then shut again because the hammer rebounded. And it re rebounded maybe, oh, five feet or so. Uh, one day, he got distracted, and the door slammed on his wrist. He couldn't get his hand out. And he didn't know because the, uh, uh, he, 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 he couldn't tell uh, whether it was going to be the long stroke or the short stroke. So he waited, holding his breath. He knew if it was the long stroke that his hand would be amputated. Mm. And... It, if it was the short stroke, the bones in his hand would be broken, but he would at least have a hand. And it was the short stroke. So the, gate, the, the doors opened, and he got his hand out, and of course went to the doctor and had uh, all those bones um, put back in place and the hand uh, completely uh, encased in, uh, in gesso and plaster. Um, and he went to work the next day, and he could do enough so that they didn't fire him, um, so he continued to work. And maybe maybe uh, three or four weeks later, uh, he still had his hand in, in that uh, cast, but there was a major short, and it was up uh, with the wiring up at the top of the 1,000-foot shaft. So my dad got up there, and I should say he climbed down a ladder from the surface yeah. uh, and got to the uh, where the wiring was, and he had to scoot along the wall, uh, standing on two pipes that ran along the wall. The inner pipe was uh, maybe two and a half inches in diameter, and the outer pipe was maybe... Um, at, maybe half an inch. It was obviously it contained uh, some of the electric wiring. And so he was off balance anyway, and there were no safety belts. So he was just scooting along there. 
and there was wiring over his head, and he figured that the the short was in that wiring, so he was holding on to the wiring as he scooted along, and he did not find the the short. It found him. It gave him a major shock, and he jerked back and lost his footing and fell. And, of course, there were a 1,000 feet uh, for him to fall. But he caught himself with his teeth on the small small pipe and broke every tooth in his upper jaw. And in blinding pain, he managed to get back to the ladder and climb up to the surface and drive to uh, Miami to a dentist who spent the rest of the day digging uh, shattered roots out of his upper jaw and then placing the, uh, the denture for the upper jaw uh, in his mouth immediately, which was the way it used to be done. When you had dental surgery and you needed dentures, and they went in immediately. And so over this series of horrible wounds, this plate went in. And my dad was ill. He was truly sick. And I remember my mother putting him to bed and wiping the blood off of his mouth. And uh, and so the Miami Mine people found out that he had been severely injured and would probably be out for days, and so he was no longer of use to them, and they fired him immediately without any any pay. I, I guess they may have paid him uh, what he had uh, earned, but it was not very much, certainly not enough to support a wife and child and to pay the doctor bills. And that is my story. Um, that uh, he did get well. Uh, he managed to somehow. I think he he borrowed money. Uh, he went to the bank in uh, in Miami, and with my uh, my aunts uh, vouching for him and so on, he managed to get enough of a loan so that we could find another place, and he found another job which was sharecropping in Missouri. <laughs> uh, so he was treated like a black slave at that next stop. But it was, um, it was room and board for his wife and child uh, and a little money for him. But uh, he helped that farmer uh, get his crops in for the next spring. So he helped plow and and uh, seed and so on, uh, and uh, then went back to New Mexico. This was uh, the, the job was in Missouri, so uh, we had to move from Miami, Arizona to Missouri, uh, in order to get that job that would keep us alive. Uh, but my dad, after everything was planted, he went back to New Mexico to see if he could find a teaching job. And he did land one, and that's a whole other story. But my main point is that that corporation that was running the mine had no no safety devices anywhere. So there was no 
safety device on the crushing machine to keep people's hands out of the way uh, when that hammer was coming down. There was no, there were no safety belts available. In fact, I don't think anyone had even heard of a safety belt in those days. There was no uh, doctor on duty. There was no help with medical costs. There, there simply was nothing but your labor and a small salary to pay you for your labor. And if you didn't do it, you were out. And they didn't give a, a damn <laughs> if you were injured. Uh, if you were not useful to them, that was the end of you. Mm-hmm. And so now, now we have, when we go to work, wherever we work, whether it's in a meat packing plant or wherever, if there is a union, and even without a union, there will be a doctor on uh, uh, on board there somehow. There will be one uh, on call. There will be restrooms, which there were not in the mine. Uh, there will be other perks. And all of these things came into being for the benefit of the workers, thanks to unions. And we take them all for granted, as if we were entitled to them. But we did not have them. And my father's case is a very good example of what could happen to you if there were no union and no previous work that the union had done to make the worker's life more humane. So, Frank, yeah. it's, you think that's a good argument for unions? Yeah, I, I, I would say I would say so. I, I mean, what a you know, what a story. And, it, you know, you know what it, it tells me? And again, the the company that your father unfortunately had to work for at that uh, at that place had no checks and balances on it, right? They had absolute power over the people. You either worked yes. or, or you you know you either took what they gave you, or you went without work. And if you have right. a wife and a child, that is not an option. So they had absolute power. And there's an old adage that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is a perfect example. That, that's a disgraceful company. And uh, it just it's not unique because companies back then and, and throughout time and now and now uh, have the same attitude towards towards human beings, their, their cattle or their chattel, however you want to look at it. And and it does not matter if you want to work. You will work by our rules, and you know mm-hmm. which, which basically will work you to death, and we'll give you as little money as possible, and you have no rights whatsoever. There's there's another you know another side of the equation where unions are very very powerful, and uh, and and they uh, they could take advantage of the situation. But I'll take my chances on that side. I, I'm from a union household. My my father was the uh, uh, when he was around. He was the teachers union and a very powerful teachers union here yes. in New York State. And uh, and my mother was the uh, the nurses union. And mm-hmm. um, and you know so I'm very grateful to unions for giving uh, my brother and I at least in the first part of our uh, childhood. A little, uh, a, a little bit more freedom. We were broke after my father left, and and, and whatever. So it was a little different there. But uh, I've always had a great deal of respect for unions. But 
uh, you know, again, when when people say unions go too far, again, it's it's if whoever has the power and whoever is going to abuse the power, um, there needs to be <laughs> checks and balances and uh, on all of these things. But your father, uh, thank God, he he was alive. I mean, he ruined his his ruined his upper jaw. But he uh, he survived, and and yeah. there but for the grace of God, go uh, uh, you know go I, uh, you know back then and and uh, when you were three years old and you had a uh, you had a father that was willing to do that for you and for your mother, and he should have never had to, but but he did mm-hmm. and he was willing to do it. That's right, and. Uh uh, he did land a teaching job, but uh, but it too <laughs> turned out to be the the one nobody wanted. It was the last teaching job in New Mexico. <laughs> two teachers had been driven out by the the people in that community, and uh, my dad uh, took the job because there was no other. And so he proved to be the one teacher they they would not and could not drive out. <laughs> But that's a that also is a great story, uh, but and for another day. But what the main point of what you're saying is that nobody, not not the corporations nor the unions, should have absolute power. And I think the uh, the example I gave of the trucker strike in France yes. was an example of the unions having too much power, uh, and uh, certainly using their power ruthlessly. Uh, in order to just disrupt the entire nation there for a few days uh, by shutting down all the major highways. So um, so there can be bad things going on on both sides, but, but without the unions at all, uh, the corporations can abuse terribly. Uh, also, uh, there was... Uh, uh, there was quite a bit of child labor still going on in the in the West and Southwest in those days. Um, so, uh, so anything that a child could do, I mean, delivery mainly, that kind of thing, and uh, working uh, in uh, to stock grocery stores and you know put put goods up on shelves, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it, Children, young children, eleven, twelve, thirteen, in there could uh, could handle that, and so of course they were paid practically nothing. Uh, so that became illegal throughout the country, um, and uh, so the the, the uh, fate of the worker in the United States uh, took a great leap towards humane conditions during World War II, really. And women, uh, for a little while, uh, were running the country, really. (laughs) But then immediately, immediately when the men came home, the women were immediately relegated to the kitchen again, kitchen and and church. That should be all for them. And it was for a little while until the women's movement got started. And women are still paid 80% of what men are, even now. Yeah, <laughs> so, amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's so my, my retirement pay, for instance, uh, I spent 22 years teaching at St. John Fisher College, and I was paid 80% of what my male colleagues, or less. Um, and so my accumulated um, annuity from 22 years was 
way below what it should be, and 10 years at Trinity University here in San Antonio oh. uh, was at, uh, my, my pay was on a par with my male colleagues. And it almost, those 10 years almost uh, equaled the 22 in the accumulation. So it just goes to show that paying women 80% is something that really counts against women. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, it's totally unjust because oftentimes we have to be twice as competent as the man to land the job in the first place. Amazing. So uh, we we haven't we women <laughs> we women uh, uh, haven't uh, unionized sufficiently in order to get uh, to get our pay up to par even now. There's a long way to go still. Yeah. If you ever band together, if the women ever band together and voted as a block, um, it would be uh, it would be all over. I mean, uh, you you would need yeah. the woman's support to to win any election because more there's more women than there are men, right? And uh, yeah. but if they band mm-hmm. together, band together and voted together, uh, there'd be no stopping women. Uh, yeah, I think that's true, and I'm hoping. Uh, of course, as a Democrat, I'm hoping that uh, women will come out in fury over uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, and uh, so, uh, but if we do not, if that issue kind of fades by uh, uh, by November, and uh, women do not come out, uh, and the Republicans win, then I think uh, Donald Trump will become president again in 2024 that's of course if he's if he's going to run i don't i'm not sure he's going to run uh or if he's going to have uh full support i was talking to somebody who was a a trump person and Mm -hmm. they were under the the impression that he's losing support among Uh his you know among his base i know there's a strong base i'm not saying this somebody had said this to me and um and it's um uh, it was somebody that I considered a trumper. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, well, uh, I've heard that too. Uh, I don't know any Trump people who uh, have fa- whose enthusiasm has faded so right. much that they wouldn't vote for him if he ran. Well, that's true. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I fear uh, what's going to happen. It's more important. Uh, for the Democrats to get out and vote in 22 than it is <laughs> even in 24 at this point. Uh, because if uh, if we don't get out there, uh, we are going to, the country is going to suffer if Trump gets back in as president. Yeah, he won't leave the next time. Right. That's for sure. Right. No, and so he's going to be another Erdogan, uh, and that's that's why the uh, Republican conference recently had Erdogan himself, the dictator of, Ung- of Hungary, uh, come and speak to them and tell them uh, uh, about uh, white supremacy and uh, and the danger of black people and brown people and Asian people and so on and so on and so forth. Uh, and it got huge applause for what he had to say, which really scares me, which indicates to me that the Republican Party is no longer the Republican Party. It's turned into an authoritarian, uh, fascist even, party. Uh, so 
I just uh, I keep on reading George Will because he is one of the old-fashioned Republicans whom I respect. Uh, but these people who uh, who want uh, white power and all the rest of that goes with it frighten me. And, of course, the Supreme Court uh, now is dominated by people who think like that. And God knows what they're going to uh, enact in the coming months. Well, the, the the big test is going to be a hundred days from now, roughly when we speak. We're speaking a hundred days, uh, you know, and I know some people will hear it tomorrow and later, and then two days later and whatever. But roughly a hundred days from now, there'll be the midterm elections, and yep. and we'll see what the effect of Roe v. Wade has and and everything else and. Again, you, you and I spoke about pocketbook voting, and when you talk about unions, um, mm-hmm. you know you're talking about uh, you know also talking about pocketbook voting in a in a sense. You know what is uh, I, you know I, I'll just give you something real quick. I had gotten someone a job in the uh, in the jail in the uh, sheriff's department as a bail liaison, and he was a union member. Uh, you know, long time, 25 years. Um, he worked for Wallbaums, which is like a Piggly Wiggly or a, uh, uh, what do you have out there? Um, oh, uh, the, the letters, uh, uh, Heb, H-E-B, is, is that one of your, your stores, right? It's a, you know, grocery store. Uh, did you have, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, and he, uh, he worked in a, you know, in, in a union job and when he retired, he wanted a, another job and we got him a part-time position in, um, in a, a sheriff's department, and he was the bail liaison, and he said to me about Republicans. He said, "Republicans will never do anything that's uh, that uh, that helps the working man." So anyway, he went in with that attitude, and he he got kind of co-opted by the uh, deputy sheriffs uh, who worked out of there and the corrections officers who watched over the jail. And he became a corrections officer. And if you talk to him, he's a big Trump person. He is a big, right now, this is the same guy who was a union person going in. So things uh, can change. People can change yes. according to what what is in their particular best interest at that time. So here's a guy right. who would never vote for a Republican in his life because he, he didn't feel they would do anything for the working man. And then all of a sudden he became a Republican and he... And he despises, uh, you know, all Democrats, you know, so. Yes, well, it depends on who, on what group you join. Right. Because the, uh, your friends and the people around you are going to influence you and change you. Uh, and David Brooks had a whole article, uh, I think it's New York Times article, uh, that was reproduced uh, today in the Express News about uh, how your friends uh, determine who you are. And I think your example is a perfect one, that he went in as a union man and came out as a, a Trump enthusiast because he joined a police group, right. um, and they were all uh, for Trump and for authoritarian uh, the authoritarian uh, way of governing, which is a whole lot more efficient and quick uh, than democracy. Uh, so if you want uh, decisions made for you, uh, 
in a very rapid way, then uh, go for a dictator. It'll work every time. Yeah. It may not be to your liking, however, but <laughs> but government will get done, and uh, there'll be no question. <laughs> right, you'll have no rights, you'll have no uh, privileges, but you'll uh, uh, you'll certainly have an, an efficient government. There you go. <laughs> the trains will run on time. This is what what a uh, uh, my office mate, uh, Gina Dapper by name. Uh, her husband was obviously not Italian, but she was, and she was a great lover of Mussolini because he always had the trains running on time, <laughs> which was true in Germany too. Hitler did the same. Wow. So dictators will get things done, you know, and with great dispatch. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh my God, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting take. Well, Doc, any, any final thoughts on on union versus uh, management? Because we're um, you know we're really in well, you know in, in that kind of situation again, where uh, where uh, unions are going to have some say, and and big business uh, uh, you know seems to be always be on the wrong uh, the, not the wrong side, on the other side I should say just. To be fair, so you're going to have unions on this one side. Keep in mind that you and I both came from, uh, well, I came from a union uh, household. And mm -hmm, I, yeah. by the way, I meant to ask you, were you in a, you were in a union as a teacher? Uh, I'm, yes. Uh, actually, I was not in a union uh, because I was teaching for, University. I lived for 28 years in, uh, in Rochester, of course, New York, as you know. Uh, and um, and for some for uh, six of those years, I was finishing my PhD, so I wasn't employed. Well, actually, I was employed as a teaching assistant by the University of Rochester, which was a private school, and I don't believe it was unionized. And um, then I went to work for St. John Fisher College, which was a Catholic school, also not unionized. So most of my uh, teaching career, uh, I, I had, you know, I was beholden to the administration uh, to decide my fate. <laughs> and and uh, Trinity University is also a private school, and uh, it started off as a, a combination of three Protestant schools. Uh, so after the Civil War, all of them were going bankrupt and failing, and they got together and decided to call themselves Trinity. So it has nothing to do with religion, uh, but it was it remained, uh, I think it was Presbyterian affiliated for a long time, and now it is, is not. But I don't think it's unionized either. So no, I never worked for <laughs> with a union. Uh, and it was by accident that I didn't. If I had been in the high school, I would have, because most public schools are unionized. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Well, anyway, a great story about your dad. Disturbing story, but uh, just says a lot about about the man. Uh, you you married uh, you married a wonderful man and a uh, and a, a very you know, a very tough man, and your and your dad was a very tough man, and I mean mentally, and uh, and and emotionally tough. Uh, they both uh, they're both unique individuals. You had two wonderful men in your life. I certainly have had, yeah, and uh, I have looked 
and and other men, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they simply don't measure up. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonderful. have not remarried, and uh, I did have a very good friendship, very with with Court's best friend, who was Ralph Friedman, uh, professor of. Uh, of German and compared English, German, and comparative literature at Princeton University, retired from there, and then went to Emory University and uh, created their comparative literature department down there. Anyway, he was my husband's best friend and wanted to marry me. And uh, after contemplating that proposal for a while, I decided no. If he could be my good friend, uh, that would be wonderful. But marriage, uh-uh, thank you. Uh, so I, we were very good friends until he died in, uh, in 2016. So. Wow. Wow. It just, uh, yeah, listen, someone, someone should say you, you should write a book, but you've actually written 16 of them and another one on the way. So, uh <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the, the memoir. The memoir is, is, yeah, you should write a memoir. memoir. Is such a book, actually. So <laughs> I am writing a book, yeah. but I should write my husband's story because it is truly uh, novel worth. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Well, Doc, you know, thank you very much for sharing all of this. Uh, not an easy, uh, not an easy life your your dad or your husband had, and uh, for sure. Yeah, just yeah. Uh, God bless them both. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and to everyone out there, uh, we appreciate your your attention. You have uh, certainly have a lot of options. We appreciate your attention each and every week. Uh, Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you next time on the Florence Weinberg Show. <laughs>